When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey there, Soundtrack fans. David Collins here. Before we begin the Soundtrack show, I am thrilled to share a special announcement. We're launching a Soundtrack show merchandise store featuring T-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and so much more, all through a collaboration with How Stuff Works and Tee Public. Just go to www.tpublic.com slash the soundtrack show to see our latest designs and grab some swag to show your love and support for not just this show, but for soundtracks and music in general. Be sure to check back often for new designs and special deals. And follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. And now, on with the show. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three, If composers like Alan Menken, Howard Ashman, Hans Zimmer, James Newton Howard, Patrick Doyle, Thomas Newman, Randy Newman, and Jerry Goldsmith were like great athletes on a Disney baseball team, then Chris Montan would be considered their coach. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode features part two of our interview with the former president of Disney Music, executive music producer Chris Montan. During our discussion, Chris talked about everything from revisiting great movie musicals on Broadway, to his time working with Pixar, to his amazing collaborations with some of the biggest composers of the last 30 years. Here is part two with Chris Montan. I'm glad you brought up Hans Zimmer. Is it is it just a joy for you to watch a career like that? We have a lot of Hans Zimmer mega fans on uh, that listen to the show. To watch a career like that just skyrocket into film scoring, uh, what's it like for you to watch people's careers after you've 
worked with them and just kind of see them develop as artists? Well, you know, it's really, really gratifying because first and foremost, I'm a fan of theirs. Generally, I'm a friend of theirs and often lifelong friends. Like I did a couple early movies with James Newton Howard when he was just getting started. One movie was called Tough Guys with Kurt Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. And, I remember you know, that movie. Was, yeah. And then I asked him to do Pretty Woman. And then gradually, though, I just watched his career just go from height to height. He got more sophisticated. His whole orchestral thing just grew by leaps and bounds. And he did a run of movies for us in the late 90s. And the movies themselves were not necessarily as good as some of our early 90s movies, but his scores, like if you go back and listen to the score for uh, the dinosaur film, mm -hmm. I said, you ought to get a screenwriting credit for that. I mean, he so the first 10 minutes of the thing, there's no dialogue. It's just him. And he is completely telling the story that you see on film. So that was really cool. I also gave um, Patrick Doyle one of his first jobs. Oh, interesting. We did a small... We did a small film called Hack and Hackinson. It was about um, it was about a seafaring thing in, in, in Scandinavia. But then I watched you know Patrick Gratchy go from strength to strength and win Academy Awards. And I was fortunate enough to get to work with him again on Brave, which was a fantastic score. Yeah. So I have a lot of stories. Watching Hans's thing happen was just so gratifying and. Um, you know, we were all sort of a generation together. We we're all pretty close in age to each other. And my job, I likened it to, was to be a coach for really good athletes. So I'm watching this track runner who can already run really fast. And I'm going, well, I've been looking on the film. And I think if you try that, you might be able to go slightly faster. Because they, they were already bringing so much to the party. But sometimes they just wanted somebody objective that they could bounce things off of and know that I was not going to BS them, that I would always tell them the truth. As a producer, do you feel that you had a hand in developing what people know to be that composer's sound? For example, I think of Hans Zimmer, I think of Thomas Newman, and I think they have a sound. They have a particular harmony or a particular instrumentation that they always seem to go after. Do you feel like you played a part in shaping that sound in, in some of those cases? Well, it's interesting. The two people you mentioned are so unique, particularly Tom Newman. He he always had such an individual streak. I worked on a couple early movies with him before we did the um, Finding Nemo film. I would never even begin to say that I influenced him. I more just tried to create an environment so that he could do his thing. And his process is a lot of development. He goes in a studio with four or five of his trusted players and they work up ideas for often two and three and four weeks before they really get down to the business of scoring. Um, so I would never presume to say that I influenced that. There may have been some composers along the way that I pushed in one direction or another, but really what I was usually doing was, especially in animation, a lot of the, the, the composers that would come in from live action had been beaten up to a certain extent by the process. They get the films very late. The um, Oftentimes the pictures aren't locked and they're supposed to do world-class scores in four to eight weeks on films that have been worked on for two years. So they're given a very, very difficult assignment. So when they came to animation, I said, look, we're going to have a lot more time. And they usually would be working on some other films because we we every one of these things took four or five years. So you know I was working on Mulan for maybe seven years. Wow! Just, some of them just took longer than others. 
Um, and but I would I would push them for certain thematic writing that a lot of live action directors, particularly today, you see a lot of the action movies and I'll if I see a, a Tommy Newman movie, I can always tell it's him. Or if I there's certain composers, I just know their signature. But I see a lot of action movies today. And sometimes I'll be surprised when I see the credit at the end, because I feel like they're almost afraid of themes. They're almost afraid that maybe a thematic score for a film is going to draw too much attention away from their characters or their coolness vibe or and that maybe melody is a little too sentimental or too primary color and you know i feel just the opposite i i think that um james had a nice melody for the main theme of pretty woman and it's still beautiful Mm -hmm. and yet the next movie he may have worked on the director may not have wanted any thematic writing so it's it's something that I feel was a big advantage for us because to me, it was like melody, bring it on, you know, the more the merrier. You got to keep melody alive at Disney. Yeah. It's, we talk about that a lot on the show. And and one of the things that I always mention is, is the studio, the director have to be on board to actually allow screen time because it takes actual feet and frames to express a melodic idea. You have to give the room, the film room to breathe in order to actually say something melodic. And uh, you just don't hear that in a lot of fast-paced movies nowadays. Well, it's funny. We had a scene in Big Hero 6 that Henry Jackman was doing, and he had written this fantastic, almost Superman-y John Williams theme to a, to a certain cut of the film. And then when the directors came in, they thought, you know, we want to toughen this scene up a little. So maybe the first 30 seconds of the minute and a half that Henry had written, let's just do more percussion and big drum stuff. But what it was going to have the effect of doing was cutting his time down so much that it wasn't going to have the same impact as a melodic line. It, it was going to get truncated. And I begged them and I just said, let, let us restore the big melody version. You can always go back to the thing that you like if, if we don't prove that we're you know, on the right track. But, and they were gracious enough to drop their idea, let Henry have the full time. And it's really one of my two or three favorite scenes in the movie. And it's all music. I mean, there's some effects here and there, but nothing like what you would see in the average action film today. It really is Henry's melodies carrying the whole thing. Wow, that's such a great story. That is really a great real-world story to hear. Uh, you know, the, all the work in animation just seems so special musically that you've you've had a hand in. I wanted to touch on on Pixar. You mentioned it briefly when you talked about Brave. Can you talk about the the early days of Pixar? really getting into the feature film business with uh, Toy Story and those incredible scores and those songs. Well, I met John Lasseter, uh, who's remained one of my closest friends. In fact, I live in Sonoma, uh, owing to him probably because he and Nancy live up here. Um, And we started talking about what Toy Story could be. And the Pixar uh, guys and gals at that time that were just getting their feet wet, they didn't want to do um, carbon copies of the kind of the princess movie approach of Disney. They didn't want to have seven songs. They, they really wanted to differentiate themselves as a, a very different animation unit. So John, though, actually did want some songs in Toy Story, fortunately. And they first went to him and said, so where are your seven songs going to go? And he kind of looked at him like, uh, no, no, I, I don't think so. And everybody was kind of freaked out, like John's kind of bucking the system here. And I went to him and I said, there's another way we can skin this, I think. And you don't have to have seven Howard Ashman songs. And I showed him 
I think it was two or three movies. It was The Graduate, with the way they used the Paul Simon music. Uh-huh. Um, uh, what you call it? It was Harry. It was something in Maud. Oh, Harold and Maud. I'm drawing a yeah. Harold and Maud with the uh, Cat Stevens music. Uh huh. And I think it it made a really big impression on John that you could have music that was very emotional, wedded to your story, but it didn't have to feel Broadway or theatery. It could actually feel like these kind of almost pop tone poems. So I gave him, we came up with a list of four or five potential writers and he chose Randy. And we were off to the races then because Randy is one of the most gifted composer songwriters of any generation. And I think is probably one of the most beloved of all the people we work with. And Randy was really up for the challenge. And I think he wrote, you've got a friend in me first. And once we heard that, it was kind of like, okay, he's totally got this. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead in your mind. And, you know, there were some starts and stops along the way, and, but it, it was really... Um, Randy's intelligence. And the thing I have to give John credit for, John had so much trust in Randy's storytelling ability. You'd never see this in a live action film. I mean, maybe with some of the real long-term collaborators like Zemeckis and Alan Silvestri, there are are a few relationships like that. But John trusted Randy to write the right music for a scene and really did not dictate too much to Randy of what he wanted him to do. And he wound up with a fantastic score of songs and score, and probably maybe better than if he had tried to micromanage it. So that was, to me, was a really great start. But then, of course, when he wrote Jesse's song for Toy Story 2, that was really one of the culminations in my career, because we we were about a year out for Toy Story 2 to come out, and the movie was not working. It had been great in its kind of early reels, but then it had just... The storytelling was not working. We were stuck. And John Lasseter came back in because he was not directing it at, at, from the outset. And we hit a point in the movie where we, it just didn't make sense. How do we get Woody to leave the Roundup gang in Andy's room and go to Japan with the prospector? It, we, had, we had made a whole prior movie showing that the Roundup gang was the greatest group of people you could be with. So... It was very hard storytelling wise. How could we rest him out of that, you know, comfort zone? And Randy eventually came in with that song, When Somebody Loved Me. That's with the uh, Sarah McLaughlin vocal, is that right? Yes. Yep. yep. And what he was laying out was Would you rather have been loved and tossed away or be immortal but never really been held or loved? And that was a pretty heady thing. I mean, I don't know if people take it away when they're seeing it. But the notion of that little doll being thrown in the garbage at the end of that song, I went, can we do this? I mean, it just felt so bold. But Randy's demo came in, and my assistant was uh, in the her, her room. And I started playing it, and I went in the other room after it was over, and tears are streaming down her face at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. Every hour we spent together lives within my heart. And when she was sad, I was there to dry her tears. And when she was happy, so was I. When she. Now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. I like to think that even though Pixar didn't always utilize songs, when they did, they really counted. They really, you know, I think that was the turning point in that movie. And unfortunately, that year we had um, "You'll Be in My Heart" from uh, Tarzan up against Jesse's song, and I, I felt like Solomon watching. <laughs> this kid torn in half, you know, because they were both, they both should have won Academy Awards. And any other year, I think Randy would have won. And it was just one of those crazy times we were having where we were working with such great artists, we were always in the hunt. I remember that that moment musically from Toy Story 2 very, very well. And I've mentioned this before on the show. I was an intern at Skywalker when that was in post uh, in the summer uh-huh. of 90, in the summer of 99. And uh, I worked uh-huh. on the on the movie, and I remember hearing, yeah, it was going to go straight to video. I mean, I think there was an announcement it was going to go to video, and then ended up being a feature that was in 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 theaters. And I remember thinking, wow, this right. thing must be really good. I had no way of preparing for the emotions that I felt during that sequence. So you called it a tone poem. It's 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 a beautiful use of music uh, and story woven together in in a non-musical, you know, it's into, you know, the phrase musical, like a Broadway musical way. I mean, it just seems such a staple of, of Pixar movies. Do, is it possible that, or, or are you saying that that moment had a big part in, in boosting Toy Story 2 into sort of the successful uh, theatrical run of a sequel to, to the original? I mean, because that was still well, we had, early days had, for Toy Story or for Pixar. Yeah, we had started it as a direct-to-video, um, and that's why John wasn't directing it. But I think within a year or two of that, we decided to make it a feature. And then once we decided that, though, now there was tremendous pressure on it for the story to really hang together. What I would say Randy helped do was help put us over the finish line story-wise. We were having trouble with that story, but I mean, even Steve Jobs came to a couple meetings, and he generally didn't come to those kind of creative meetings. But we were all kind of trying to put our brain power on how do we solve the story hole and I think once we had that song, and then John and John will tell you, it was probably one of the most magical days he and I have ever had. We flew up to um, Vancouver with Randy, and we met Sarah McLaughlin in the studio. None of us had ever met her. 
She came in. We probably talked for 20 minutes. She's very charming. She goes out and she does five takes live with Randy at the piano. And I kid you not, normally I'll sometimes build a vocal from three separate sessions with, you know, 40 takes or something. And I've got it the A from one line and the whatever. In this case, as we were going through the comp her vocal and I, everyone was perfect. I finally just turned to her and said, why don't you just pick the one you like the best? Because they're all perfect. That's amazing. And what did one of those? Day, you just pinch. You just pinch yourself that you're in a business like that where these artists can come together. We've never met before. I've only think I've seen her once since in 20 years. But in that moment, everybody's on the same vibe. It was just like time stood still for those couple hours. And one of those takes ended up in the final. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that's. That I have chills from this interview in general. I just want you to know, you keep throwing out amazing project after amazing project. You must just have so many stories. I, I wanted to I want to be respectful of your time because I could talk to you about this stuff for a very long time. But I wanted to ask you. You had mentioned uh, Newsies, um, which is that kind of gem that was rediscovered on video. My wife and I actually went to see it here at the Pantages in Los Angeles, and it was like a rock concert. I'd never seen a live yeah. theater experience like that before, where. Uh, audience members had cosplayed like they were newsies and they were screaming when, when things started and, and cheering like they were at a, I mean, you know, any sort of pop concert, like a Justin Bieber concert, they were screaming at at the, at the, uh, at the stage without getting too deep into newsies, which by the way, I, I loved the rewrites and I thought that the, 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 the story was even better than it was in the film. You know, I went in not knowing what to expect and was just blown away by it. But it leads me to this question of, are there moments in your career where you have these favorite darling projects of yours that you poured in a ton of creative energy into, but maybe they get overshadowed by the mega hits that people like me bring up every time they get an opportunity to talk to you? Do you have those uh, projects that you that you're particularly proud of that you just wanted to see more attention or that you would always want to shine a spotlight on when given the opportunity? You know, it's funny. People always ask me what my favorite one was and, and that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, so many of them kind of did find a fair amount of attention. Um, I was always very partial to Mulan. Uh-huh. I thought Jerry's music for Mulan was just, it was like having the best of one of the greatest live action composers put his head to doing an animated score. And we did a concert of his music um, at the Hollywood Bowl one night to film. And that was one of the great memories of my life because I got to go to Jerry Goldsmith's house about once every 10 days, and he would play me what he was working on, just me and him. And he, he really cared. I mean, he was now already in his 70s, um, yet his desire to be great and for me to feel that it was great and to reflect that back to him was something I never forgot. And it made me think... It's sort of like when you watch a baseball game and you you watch some of the younger guys and they don't run the ground ball out sometimes. Uh And Jerry taught me that you run every ground ball out. You know, you there's there's a reason why his music is so great and will last so long and why he was often the first one in in a lot of those genres, whether it was space, you know, with Star Trek. And it's because he so cared about everything he put to the paper.
but as to you know projects that got away um i was sad that the the original newsies film wasn't quite up to par that the story wasn't quite as developed as i think it got uh, i give harvey firestein a lot of credit for coming back and working on the book with bob and noni's book and making it a lot clearer and also adding a love interest which i think was more important it's a crooked game we're playing one will never lose long as suckers don't mind paying just to get bad news ain't it a fine life carrying the banner through it all a mighty fine life carrying the banner tough and tall when that bell rings we go where we wish And then I'm very partial to our state show, Aida, uh, which yes. uh, Elton wrote. There are some songs in that that I think if it had been an animated musical, would he have even that much more attention? Um, that's one of my favorites. I guess I have a lot. <laughs> no, that's that's really great. I mean, you mentioned uh, Jerry Goldsmith just bringing excellence to everything he he does. One of my favorite Jerry Goldsmith melodies is actually from Soarin' Over California. I mean, he, he just, oh, yeah. everything he does is just magic. It doesn't matter if it's three minutes for a ride or if it's, you know, for Planet of the Apes. I mean, it's just, it's just brilliant. Yeah, I got to develop that with him because we were finishing Mulan maybe, or we had just finished. And I hadn't taken over the parks yet. I did do that the last four, five or six years of my career. But they, Parks asked me to come work with Jerry on it because he was a friend and I was used to working with him. And when he played me that melody, I was just like, oh, yeah. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. And now, back to The Soundtrack Show. Now, maybe next time, I know that you talk with Bobby and Kristen at length about Frozen, but I'd love to talk a little bit about that as well, because it was so gratifying toward the end of my career to have something that felt like the days of Little Mermaid and Beauty. And the reason we did it was John came to us and said, I want to make a movie like those movies. And um, I think that's why when Bobby and Kristen wrote such an incredible score, it resonated so much because we used all the same principles. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to stop you from talking about it. I, I love, I love that the, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't been out to New York to see it, but I love how they went from seven and a half songs to over 20 
and realize this full musical. I, actually, that does lead me to maybe a, a follow-up question, which is, can you talk about your experience in translating something like Frozen or The Lion King uh, to to a Broadway musical or a live show? Certainly Newsies we talked about. What's that process like from a producer's perspective? Um, and any great stories along the way in terms of something particularly challenging? I can't help but think of The Lion King. Well, I think the... The advantage we had with Frozen was that we were being asked to write, and they were being asked to write the extended, the new songs fairly shortly after the movie had been released. So you're somewhat as a writer in the same zone. Whereas when we were doing Aladdin, Alan Macon was being asked to go back now and write songs to, to be companion pieces to something that came out in 1992 or something. Right. So... It, that was a lot trickier because you're trying to get yourself back in that same creative space and that whole Fats Waller thing that Howard and Alan had come up with. Whereas Bobby and Kristen, we would spot through the story with our director and then they would go off and write really to order each one of them. And we had a lot of time pressure. We They put a pretty early release date on us. And so they had to drop everything else they were doing, including a couple animated projects and put on hold. And they kind of just went into the, the dungeon, I guess, and <laughs> in six months turned out so many amazing songs. I mean, you'll see it when you, uh, it's one of the most, it's one of the soundtracks I'm the most proud of. When you listen to the songwriting, the lyrics, the musicianship, the orchestrations, the, the music direction, everything about it. We had like the 20, 1927 Yankees on that group. It was just everywhere you looked, there was the perfect talent. And I think for people that see the stage show, they don't feel that letdown where sometimes if you go see an animated movie that's been made into a Broadway show, some of the new songs, first of all, you don't know them. And second, they may not always feel quite as good and you're competing with a whole new world and friend like me. So it's, it's not an easy order. Um, yeah. but I think that was my job was to try to keep the song, the new song level writing up. So you didn't feel like it was just the animated movie padded with things that it was actually songs that could have been in the movie that were every bit as good as the ones in the movie. I actually thought it brought a new dimension, and I actually said this to to Bobby and Kristen, it brought a new dimension to the characters. And besides being sort of stylistically seamless, it seemed to kind of make the story more interesting in terms of uh, especially Elsa's journey. Um, yeah. And, and is that something that uh, that on the production side you knew you wanted to do? Is that something that comes from Kristen's lyrics? Or what are those conversations like uh, in Frozen or, or any time you have to go back to the source material and plus it up a little bit? Where does that come from? Well, I think it's a it's a pre- I think it comes from pretty much the whole creative team. I know that um, Michael Grandage, our director, and Tom Schumacher, who is our producer, we all felt that having this many new songs would allow us to get much deeper into Elsa's character. She was a bit of an enigma in the movie. Her screen time is actually quite limited. It's just that Let It Go is so such a big experience that people think she's onward than she really is. So we all thought, and we really wanted to give um, Patty or Anna a love song at the end of the of the show, mm-hmm. and with True Love. And it that's a tough thing to do because when you're that close to the ending, all of a sudden whipping out a new ballad that the audience doesn't know can be pretty risky. They could get bored. They could tune out of the story. And I think 
the song they wrote is so beautiful that it just kind of rivets you and gets us to the ending that way. But it was it was a conscious effort on all our parts because animated movies are usually only about 85 or 90 minutes. Broadway shows are a couple of hours. So you necessarily get to work into the maturity of the characters much more, plus your audiences are older. Right. And so they're not going to necessarily take a simplistic take on a character that you might be able to get by with in it. Not a simplistic, but a, a more primary color version in the animated movie. In a show with live actors on stage, it has to feel real and palpable. There's just become this new exciting art of taking certain things in an animated medium and then bringing them into either Broadway or live action movies that is just so fascinating because it's almost a celebration of their differences. Like, for example, I think about yeah, the work yeah. of, of uh, you mentioned Fabro. I think about the Jungle Book. I can't wait for The Lion King. But even the live action Beauty and the Beast was just a smash hit last year. Um, yeah. W- but was still such a faithful take on the uh, original animated film, yet felt just so naturally different because it was uh, shooting live actors. What was that experience like bringing, uh, bringing those musicals into the live action uh, medium? Because it just must have been such a crazy, uh, just a trip to look at or work on. Well, I didn't work that much on Beauty till the very, very end. My friend Mitch ran that project. But what I think the advantage was, Bill Condon was a big fan of the film and wanted to stay truthful to it and just really just wanted to add some things that might give it some more depth. So he added the mother backstory mm-hmm. and some other things that I think, and, and the uh, father got a really moving song. I think, you know, it's good to hold on to a good part of it because people come in and they just love, it's like they're their brothers and sisters. So if you depart too much, I think you kind of fool with the, the, the pact that you have with this audience. Then, then if you can add a few things that stay within the context, it makes the fan even feel better because they're seeing something that they know, but they feel like they're learning a little bit more about these characters that they already liked. And that's the part I like. I like that we stay true to it, and then we add just enough to keep, make it worthwhile to do it again. You have to justify a reason for doing it. Right. It, 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 and it's such a curious, not curious, but like a, 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 a unique situation where, you know, you see so many reboots happening uh, with movies. And this was not a reboot yeah. at all. There, There's this unspoken contract that maybe is unique to Disney because of the brand being so powerful and still being so culturally relevant that you do have to hit those pillars of what people remember from the 1991 release. Uh, that's just so fascinating yeah. to yeah. me. Fascinating. And certainly a sign that you did exactly what you set out to do, which was change the culture with musical material, which, uh, you know, I think everyone listening to this show can absolutely agree on that, that that you succeeded wildly in doing so. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was, uh, you know, it was something I never saw coming. Usually things like that you don't see coming. I can look back now and see how it happened, but I never dreamed it was going to go as well as it did. But I'm just fortunate that the people I, I worked with were all world-class people. Uh, I once heard a, a casting director say, you know, when watching an actor in the studio say, that actor is brilliant, and I'm brilliant because I put them there. And uh, and that is absolutely true. Uh, and these stories are just blowing my mind. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time. Um, like I said, I could talk to you about this for a long time, but I, I do hope you come back sometime and offer your insights and opinions, maybe when we're covering uh, another another piece of music. 
or a, a certain release, I'd love to have you back on the show and uh, thank you for your insights. Thank you. It would help me too because I'm being asked to write a book usually and doing these interviews helps me go back and start thinking about the chapters. <laughs> great, great. Well, it's it's a deal then. Yeah. Uh, happy to help anytime, okay. anytime. Thanks so much, Chris. Great. We'll be back next week with more music, more analysis, and more great stories right here on The Soundtrack Show. Thank you. Thank you.